Good morning. Open up your Bibles to Exodus 40. We're going to look at verse 1 through 16 and then verse 34 through 38. So Exodus 40. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And place the basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. And consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand, and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water. And put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him, and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. And you shall bring his sons also. And put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day And fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, it's good to be in your house today, and we are your people gathered for the express purpose of meeting with you. And so I pray that you would now use your word and specifically Exodus chapter 40, to help us to behold wonderful things from your law. Would you help me to unpack this passage, to be able to make it clear and evident and plain, and that you, Lord, would move us today into another element and aspect of your glory as we behold the beauty of your Son once again in this great book of Exodus. So come now, help us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Glad you're here today. Take your Bibles and uh, turn with me over to Exodus chapter 40. If you're not already there, I want to 
welcome those of you who are watching online today who couldn't be with us in the room today. Glad you are worshiping with us today as well. Today is um, the second of two messages that are wrapping up this uh, book of Exodus. Next week will be our final message as we uh, wrap up this uh, almost year-long, year, actually more than a year-long study of this uh, great and wonderful books of the Bible. Exodus has become one of my uh, most favorite books, uh, particularly most favorite book of the Old Testament for sure. I approached this uh, study uh, some uh, year and a half ago with a, a fair amount of fear and trepidation. How could you connect the Old Testament to the gospel every single week? And it's been a enjoyable journey. It's uh, been one that uh, has helped us, I think, to see some things in the Old Testament and the New to see it a little differently. In fact, this has changed the way that I've read the Bible. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of when I was a kid, there was a a commercial for <clears throat> for Tootsie Rolls, and uh, one of the lines went something like this, wherever um, I look, I think I see becomes a Tootsie Roll to me. You remember that line somewhere? Well, for me, wherever I look in the New Testament now, it's like wherever I look, I think I see Exodus. It becomes real to me. That's what happens. It just it, I see things in the New Testament now in light of what we've been uh, examining in the book of Exodus. We've been able to see the beauty of the gospel on display and be able to see the way in which God's redemptive plan is unfolding in its foundational element in the book of Exodus and then in full blossom in the New Testament. Today, though, we have one theme that still remains, and this theme may be the most important theme of all. In fact, this theme is why God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. It is why he raised up Pharaoh and then conquered him. It's why he delivered his people of Israel out of Egypt. It's why he gave the law. It's why he showed up at Mount Sinai. And today it is why he comes and inhabits the tabernacle. As well, it's the same theme that emerges in the New Testament as to why Jesus comes, why he dies on the cross, why he was raised from the dead, why a personal relationship with Christ is so important, and what the new heavens and the new earth are all about. So all of those things all center on one particular theme, and that theme is very evident in Exodus 40, and that theme is the matter of God's presence. In fact, the... Um, prophet Isaiah called the Messiah Emmanuel. And the gospel writer Matthew talks about the fact that Emmanuel means God with us. So the idea is that everything that's happening in the Bible, everything that's happening as it relates to the gospel, is to try and reconcile a holy God with sinful mankind. And God's aim is to dwell again with his people. For us to be his God, for us to be his people, and for him, him to be our God. It is for him to dwell among us once again. And so this is seen all throughout the Bible. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, But now in Christ, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the idea is that God, through Christ, is reconciling us to himself such that at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, he says that you are being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in the New Testament, the dwelling place isn't a tabernacle or a temple. It's the people of the body of Christ. It's us. And we are being brought in reconciliation to our God through the shed blood of Jesus. So God's aim is to bring his presence back into the midst of his people. 
We've seen this theme, hints of it, that God wants to be among His people, that God is not like us, He likes us, and yet the beauty of Exodus 40 is that He lives among us. Here is this God who is full of grace, full of mercy, full of sovereign power, a God who is dangerously holy, a God who is filled with eternal beauty, a God who is not like you, yet He likes you, and then in Exodus 40, he lives among you. I mean, what a, what a stunning reality that must have been for Israel. He was the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he is right there. Hmm. This is the beauty and also the trauma of God's presence. So I want to show this to you in six different observations from Exodus 40 this morning and want to help you to see the the picture that emerges of the power and the significance of God's presence. There is, there's much to behold here in Exodus chapter 40. Look at verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses. Now, this is the first time we've seen and heard this kind of statement since chapter 34, where Moses was instructed to um, return back up the mountain. And what we see here is that God gives some very specific instruction, and then he says this in verse 2. Here's what he says. On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And so what we see here is the priority of God's presence. On the first day of the first month of the new year, you shall erect that tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. So the first day of the first month, and we've heard that before. Remember where we've heard that before? The first day of the first month? It was all the way back during the time of the Passover when Israel was coming out of Egypt and God marked that new year with this Passover feast and it was to be the beginning of their year. So likely what's happened here, it's now been a year, and in order to mark the beginning of the new year, they have the construction of the tabernacle. That the new year would start with this new place of worship, this new place of God's presence. And the timing of this on the first day of the first month is not by coincidence. As we'll see later on, God's presence would define Israel as a people. It would define them in terms of their identity. And what's happening here is that God is making a statement about the importance of their God-centeredness. That on the first day of the first month, they are to erect this tabernacle, this, this place of worship. In the same way that the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is a day of reprioritization in our lives. To be reminded what's really important. So on the first day of the week, we, we gather in order to be reminded in the midst of all the things that we're involved in, this is what really, really matters. That God and Him being the center of our lives, that's the essence of what life is really all about. And so we have a a priority in terms of where it's placed in the calendar, but also in terms of what things are put inside of the tabernacle. Verse 3, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony. So if God's presence was to be central in the life of Israel, it would center around the ark of the covenant. This ark of the covenant had on top of it a gold lid and on that gold lid were two cherubim and god said that on this gold lid called the mercy seat and between the cherubim that's where he would meet with his people and where he would speak to them in fact 
Exodus 25 puts it this way, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, and there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on top of the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. So the idea is that the centrality of God's presence is is located in this arena of the Ark of the Covenant, located very specifically between the two cherubim. This is where God will meet with his people. And so therefore, there's nothing more important to Israel than the presence of God, and therefore nothing more emblematic of God's presence than this Ark of the Covenant. And so that's why it is listed first of all of the things that are to be put inside the tabernacle. And the remaining verses, uh, verses 4 all the way to 15, detail the things that are to be put inside that tabernacle. But don't miss the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is the first thing that's mentioned. So it's the first day of the first month. The first thing that is mentioned is the Ark of the Covenant. All of this to say that God's presence was to be a priority in the mindset of the people of Israel. And it's no wonder that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, regarding the kingdom, says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. It's no wonder that the psalmist in Psalm 27 says so profoundly, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to gaze upon His glory, and to inquire in His temple. God's presence is that important that it must be the priority in the life of His people. The psalmist wants to come with the assembly of God's people and he wants to gaze the beauty of the glory of God. Is that why you came today? Did you come because you wanted to behold something? Did you want, when you woke up this morning and you thought about church, what was the thought that went through your mind? Was it, man, it's Sunday, bummer. When you woke up with the first thoughts in your mind and heart, was it that, man, I get to go and behold the beauty of God today in singing and, and through the, the declaration of His Word? What, why did you come today? What do you want to see in corporate worship today? I hope that what you want to see is some display of the glory of God that you would come and with the psalmist would say, God, I want to behold your beauty. I want to see you as I gather with God's people. So there is a a priority related to God's presence. Secondly, God's presence requires obedience. When a Hebrew author mentions something multiple times, he does so because it is important. So a way to emphasize the importance of something is to repeat it. For example, in Isaiah chapter 6, in order to emphasize the holiness of God... The cherubim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Well, what we find in Exodus chapter 40 is that the idea of the Lord commanding Moses, it's listed eight times between verses 16 and 32. Let me show this to you. Look at verse 16. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. Verse 19, he spread the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 21, and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Verse 23, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 25, and set up lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 27, burn fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 29, he set up the burnt offering, the entrance of the tabernacle, of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord commanded Moses. And then again, verse 32, and they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. I mean, the, you get the point, don't you? The point is, is that that Moses did exactly what the Lord had commanded. And we saw that last week, didn't we? With the people of Israel, that behold, they had done it. They had done it exactly as the Lord had said. So the people of Israel were to be holy, and God's presence required that they were an obedient people. And throughout the Old Testament, particularly as it relates to the law, the obedience of God's people was directly related and based upon the fact that God lived among them. In fact, part of, part of the reason why Israel was given the law was because of the fact that God dwelled among them and therefore they needed to be a holy people. And you need to know that God's presence was incredibly practical. There were very specific laws that were given and they weren't just theoretical ideas or just kind of moral internal codes. The presence of God related to very practical daily matters. In other words, that God's presence is supposed to translate into real life on the street obedience. For instance, in the, um, in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 23, there's instructions given regarding how, how they are to handle sanitation issues in the camp. God wanted his camp to be clean, and therefore human waste and garbage needed to be taken care of in a very particular way. And the reason why they were to do this was because of the presence of God. After giving instructions regarding how they were to deal with sanitation God says this, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. So the idea is this, is that God's presence is so practical that it needs to affect even the minutia in how you live. Here's my question. Do you think of the presence of Christ in you by the Holy Spirit like that? Do you you think of the presence of Christ as that which affects the real world in which you live, not just what happens in here, but what happens out in, 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 in your school and in the marketplace and in the context of your home. Does the presence of Christ, is that something that, that really affects how you live? Because the Apostle Paul, when he talked about issues like morality, particularly sexual morality, he used the argument of presence. Meaning, you're taking Christ with you. So one of the ways that is very helpful in defeating temptation is for you to imagine that Christ is right with you because he is right with you. You know, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Things that you're hearing and thinking about and watching, places that you're at where you know I shouldn't be here. One of the ways that can really help you to say, you know, I need to get out of here, need to stop doing this, is because it's not what if Jesus was here. It is Jesus is really here. That's Paul's argument. In 1 Corinthians 6, listen to what he says. To people who are being immoral, he says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Don't miss the significance of that statement. 
Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, or so glorify God in your body. So the idea is this, is that obedience and presence are absolutely linked together. The reason why you've been given, if you've received Christ, the reason why you've been given the Holy Spirit is so that you can practically, in your life, learn how to obey, how to follow Him and love Him and serve Him and practice the personal presence of Christ in every aspect of life. The beauty of what it means to be a Christian is that the empowering presence of Jesus transforms everything in life. It's the point. Obedience and presence went hand in hand. Here's the third thing. We find that the presence of God is experiential. That God literally moved into the midst of their camp. It was something that they could see and experience. In verse 33, we see that Moses finishes the work. And then look at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. This cloud is really significant. The cloud symbolized the presence of God throughout their journeys in this book. Let me just give you a quick overview and trace it with you where we've seen the cloud. The cloud first emerged when the people left Egypt and God guided them in their deliverance moment in Exodus chapter 13 by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and led them out of their captivity. And then that cloud moved between them and protected them against the onslaught of Pharaoh's army. In chapter 14, in chapter 16, when the people grumbled about not having enough food, God appeared in a cloud and answered them. In chapter 19, when they moved to the base of Mount Sinai, the cloud settles on top of the mountain. And as some theologians call it, it was a thunderstorm theophany where God is is showing His power and His glory and His transcendence with loud peals of thunder and a sound of a trumpet and smoke and lightning. And then there's a, 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 a tent outside of the camp that Moses called the tent of the meeting. And he would go out into that tent and the cloud would descend upon that tent and then it would leave. And, and Moses would come out and his, his face would be glowing because he met with God. And so here is this cloud that has been their, their, their guide and their guardian. It has been something they've been afraid of, something that has been marvelous to watch Moses in, in uh, interact with God and that cloud was symbolizing God's presence and that cloud has now come and it's moved right in the middle of their camp. Their whole camp was built around the tabernacle and the cloud comes and dwells right in their midst. So the idea is here is this holy, righteous, grace-giving God and he is not like us, he likes us and he's right there. That must have been incredible. There was an experiential reality to God being in the midst of their camp. Think of what it must have been like to wake up every morning and to see the cloud covering the tabernacle. Or as verse 38 pictures it, or describes it, to see a pillar of fire over top of that tabernacle in the evening. Meaning that God's presence is experiential. It was something that was personal, it was real, it was practical. This is how John described his experience with Jesus in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. We have seen His glory and experience. 
human beings saw his glory. And then he says this, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, John doesn't have words to capture what he saw when he saw Christ. He came, he lived among us, we saw him, and we saw his glory. There was an experience of that. Now, I don't know if in your church tradition, if your background, if experience was a part of what it meant to be a, a, a fan of Jesus, someone who was a follower of his, somebody who was really committed to being a disciple of his, but you need to know that experience is a part of what it means to be a Christian. And granted, you can take experience way to an extreme But does anybody really want Christianity if it isn't experienced? Does anyone really want to be able to sing if it doesn't move you? Does anyone really want to read the Bible if you don't really hear God speaking through his word? That there is to be an experiential reality that the life of Jesus was meant not just to be theoretical or intellectual or spiritual. It's meant to be all of that, but it's also meant to be very personal and very practical. Which is why the Apostle Paul says this in in, in Galatians chapter 5, Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh walk by the spirit that means every single day and the things that you do live under the control of the holy spirit such that your words your actions your attitudes even in the minute little things that you do and say that you look like jesus that as you walk through life as you put on your your clothes you go out in the morning as you enter in the marketplace you you do whatever it is that god has called you and gifted you to do that there's something just uniquely different about you That you are a child of His and there's something inside of you that is radically different. That you walk by the Spirit. It's the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 regarding what controls us. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul says, "Don't, don't be overcome with wine so that you lose yourself and you lose perspective and you're overly controlled by by." alcohol don't don't let your life be consumed by that but the same level of control that that would give you would take over your life let the spirit so fill you so that it controls your life in the same way that alcohol could control you so let the spirit of christ control you the idea is this don't walk through life letting other things control you let the spirit of christ control you you see christianity was meant to be something that was experienced something that was real something that works In the same way in the Old Testament, this cloud comes and the people could see it. It was real. It was there. God could have manifested his presence in any way, but he chose to do it in a cloud so the people could see it so that it would be experienced. Fourth, the presence of God is also supernatural. It says the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There was something supernatural in that moment. And that supernatural reality of God's presence is connected to one word in the text. It's the word glory. The cloud fills, covers the tabernacle, but it's the glory of God that consumes it. It's the glory of God that is emanating from it. That word glory means weightiness. It means heaviness. It means worthiness. It means Something that is greater. This last week we were talking about, this is a staff, and Joe Bartimus was 
doing some teaching on the book of Haggai, and he referenced this word and how it could be compared when you throw a rock into the water, that it makes a little splash, but then you throw a bigger rock into a water, it makes a bigger splash. And my mind immediately went to a cannonball and jackknife competition that my kids had this summer as to who could make the bigger splash. And of course, I won, which is nothing to be proud of because with more weight comes more splash, right? So the point is this, that the weightier you are, the more water is displaced and the bigger the splash. And in the same way, when it comes to God's glory, there is this weightiness. He displaces everything else and his glory is evident more so in him than in anything else. Since he is weightier than anything else in all of the universe, since his glory is more eminently beautiful than anything else, then there's nothing in the universe that is more attractive, nothing more significant than His glory. In fact, His his, his glory is so powerful that Moses, in verse 35, is not able to enter the tent of the meeting because of the cloud that had settled on it, because the glory of God filled the tabernacle. This is very common. When the glory of God shows up, human beings have to back up. When the glory of God's, God comes, human, sinful human beings, their response is, something is here that is otherworldly. It's Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah experiences the glory of God and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost or undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So if you get a picture of the glory of God, if, if there's a moment in corporate worship or in your private communion with the Lord, if you get a glimpse of the glory of God, what happens is you understand two things simultaneously. Number one, you understand the beauty of who God is. You are struck with the majesty of this king and you see him in the text or you sing about him. And then you're also struck with your unworthiness. And those two things exist in parallel. And instantaneously you understand the beauty of God and your utter wretchedness. And you find yourself marveling at both the beauty of God and His unbelievable grace to you. That is what it means to behold the beauty of God. And yet at the same time, it's also glorious. There is nothing in the universe more lovely, more attractive, more beautiful, more awe-inspiring than the glory of God. It is the most beautiful thing that ever was or ever will be, which is why God is relentless for you to pursue His glory, and why Jesus says in John 17, in His prayer for His disciples, that they would behold His glory. Why does He want them to see His glory? Why would Moses ask to see the glory of God? Why would God implore you to seek His glory and want to see it? Why would all of those things be so central to the glory of God? Here's why. Because there's nothing in all of the universe more attractive, more life-giving, more powerful, more compelling than the glory of the majesty of the God of all gods. The universe has been created by this God and there is nothing that compares to the weightiness of who and what He is. In fact, you might think of it like the sun, the physical sun. The sun is central and it's important to us. We, we live by it. We mark our days by it. We grow food by it. We stay warm by it. It, The sun even can kind of change your attitude, can it? 
And you know what it's like. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I, you know, I lived in western Michigan before, and it, it's a lot sunnier here way down in the south, right? And uh, that, that's really nice. You know why? Because it seems like people are nicer here. It's not because they are. It's because the sun's out more. That's what it is, right? Back in western Michigan, it didn't hardly ever, hardly saw the sun from November to December. And that has an effect on people's psyche. I mean, we, we never, I tried never vote on anything in January or February because people were inclined, they just wanted to say no about anything, right? So we never had any church discussions in January and February because people were always inclined. They were mad. They hadn't seen the sun. The sun comes out and all of a sudden righteousness and grace comes back into the community. I don't know what happened. And you know what that's like, right? It's a gloomy, cloudy day. You kind of feel down and depressed. Sun comes out and suddenly you feel like, wow, life's good again. All it takes is the sun to shine. Well, listen to this. In the new heaven, in the new earth, guess what replaces the sun? The glory of God. Listen to Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Just think of it. Think of living in a a, another world, a world similar to this, with no sin and and no pain and, and no possibility of temptation. And every day, it's always sunny all the time, but the glow of the new heaven and the new earth doesn't come from a ball in the sky, but rather it comes from the glory that's connected to the creator of the universe. And you know that you live where he lives and his glory is what is lighting up your everyday experience. Every day you're on this planet, it's new. Everything has been recreated and the glory of God is now the light. There's no need for sun or moon. There's no sin or darkness anymore. It's all light all the time because it's all God and all glory all the time. Oh, what a day that will be. The presence of God displays His glory. And yet, that's not just a otherworldly future thing. It's actually something that in part is supposed to happen now. Remember a couple weeks ago we looked at 2 Corinthians 3.18 and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So that we're being transformed even now from one degree of glory to another. That when we display the beauty of Christ in us we're showing the hope of glory. So it's supernatural. Fifth, this glory is defining, or this presence rather, is defining. The people of Israel were different than any other nation on the earth. They were marked by the presence of God. Look at verse 36. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. So the people of Israel, now their entire identity and their life as to where they were going to go and who they were is wrapped up in the presence of God. God was with them and it marked them. He was their identity. Their life and their existence was now defined by their God. He was their rescuer, their provider, their lawgiver, their healer, their leader, and their life. And the people of Israel had nothing without God in the same way that you and I have nothing without Christ. 
He defines everything about us. He's the one who rescued us. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who's in, caused us to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who we're waiting to come back and, and make everything right that is wrong. God's people are a group of people who've been rescued. We've been loved. And we have been redeemed. And it is this mark that now defines our identity. The book of Deuteronomy says this about the people of Israel. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord has set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and has redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In other words, if you get this identity and you understand God's glory and you understand who and what you really are, then there will be a question between The reality of who God is and the reality of who you are. And the question will sound something like this. God, why have you loved me? Why did you set your love on me? Why did you help me to hear the gospel? Why did you place me into the home that I was in? Why why did you set your love on me? I'm not worthy of this. Why, why, why? And there is no answer to that except because you are God. That's why. It's not because we're a great catch, because we are more faithful than other people, because we're more obedient than others, or because we bring a lot to the table in terms of God's work. It is only because of His grace. And the more you understand the beauty of God's presence and that reality transforms your identity, the more humbled you are that God would ever set His love on you. So listen to me. The more you understand God's presence and His glory, the more abhorrent pride becomes and the more you embrace your own humility that you know you have nothing without Him and yet with Him you have everything. And this identity of who you are in Christ defines you. And then here's the last thing. God's presence is incredibly hopeful. So here we come to the end of this great book. Everything about the Exodus and the ten plagues and Pharaoh and Mount Sinai and all the law, it all comes down to this. Verse 38, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And that just, boom, ends right there. The the, the idea in Exodus is almost like, and they lived happily ever after. (laughs) And we know that's not the rest of the story. We, We know that there are some really bad moments in Israel's history, but Exodus ends with this picture because the message of Exodus is essentially that God has rescued His people. He's bought them. He conquered the most powerful superpower known to mankind during that particular era of history. He rescued them out. He's given them His law. And now He's going to live right there among them. them, And wherever He goes, they're going to go. The idea is that God is with them. Wherever they went, God was going to be with them. My guess is you've heard this psalm before. Psalm 23. There will be many times in your lifetime when you will need this verse. You will need to be reminded that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't need to fear any evil because God is with you. 
His rod and His staff, they comfort me. Do you know what that means? That means that when the bottom falls out and life is difficult beyond compare, when you wake up the morning after a very difficult tragedy or you wake up the weeks and months after a very difficult life experience and you suddenly realize and wake up from a dream and you realize, oh, rats, this really is my life. And when you have that thought, it is conquered by even then he is with me. That there's never a dark moment that you experience. There's never the consequence of sin in your own life or because of others. There's never anything that happens to you. There's nothing the enemy could throw at you that ever separates you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, ever. That He has come to dwell among us. And in the New Testament sense, He has come through Christ and dwells in us by the Holy Spirit such that Paul says this, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why does Paul say this? He says this because life is hard. It's filled with all sorts of difficulties. Reaching the world for Christ won't be easy. But the one thing you never have to wonder or worry about is God with us. And the answer is absolutely. He's always with you. Jesus, in his last words to the disciples in the Great Commission, said this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why did he say that? He said that so that there would be an impetus for us to reach unreached peoples, to reach people who don't want to be reached, so that we would enter the world and look at it through a lens of, I'm here not just to live, I'm, I'm here to actually reach people for the purpose of Christ. I mean, you realize today when you, when you came to church, traffic in the city of Indianapolis was pretty light this morning, wasn't it? I mean, you can get to church a lot faster than you can get to work. But I want you to realize how bad that is. Your drive and your commute is easy. You know why? Because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people in this community who won't darken the door of a church today because the reality is they don't have a relationship with Christ. And walking across your lawn to reach a neighbor and developing a relationship with a lost person at your work is going to take risk. It's going to be hard. You might be rejected. But even in those moments, Jesus promises you, even then I am with you. So you are free to be able to be a gospel witness person in your arena because he is with you. You're free to love hard people, to do risky things, to step out of your comfort zone, because at the end of the day, the presence of Christ is always with you. So Jesus says, go, go and make disciples. Go reach unreached people groups. Go help underserved people in our community and go reach your neighbor and know that as you go, I'm always with you, that the presence of God defines the people. It's the thing that makes them joyful beyond compare, and it's the thing that makes it safe when they do hard or risky or uncomfortable things. So God's plan for His people has never changed. It is that He likes you, but He's not like you, and yet He lives among you. And the hope in Exodus chapter 40 is that He will never, ever leave you. And that is why God's presence is so beautiful. Because He rescued you. He loves you. He dwells with you. So you could be free really free to love him 
And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because he never, ever leaves you. His whole purpose in all of this rescuing was so that he could dwell among his people, that he could be our God and we could be his people. That's why his presence is so unbelievably powerful, compelling and attractive. So Lord, would you help us to live today in light of that presence Would you give us the ability and the courage to see our place in the world, to realize that you have rescued us for your glory, not for our own, that you've redeemed us to be a part of your kingdom's advancement. And it's good to be reminded on the first day of the week what life really is all about. So Lord, today for people who just need to know that you're with them, would you pour out grace today on their hearts and help them to be reminded that there's never, never once, never once have they ever walked alone. And Lord, would you give us grace to embrace this presence of you in our lives so we can be the kind of missionally oriented people that you want us to be. And then, Lord, as we worship together corporately or as we worship privately, would you remind us that our aim is not just to read, it's not just to sing, it's not just to listen, but it is to behold, to see you. Oh, and I hope that we've been able to see you today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some folks up here for prayer. If you need to have someone pray over you, this uh, prayer team here would love to be able to care for you and love you today, so don't leave if... You need someone to pray for you, all right? God bless you, Couch Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.